Welcome to the Man Fused Podcast. I am Kay Lee, audio producer, voiceover artist. I'm sitting here with my boy, Ben H., real estate entrepreneur, Army veteran. How you doing, Ben? Yes, sir. Doing great. Feeling good, looking good all the way. I know you've seen news clips on war. I know you've read about it in the newspaper or wherever you get your news. But I'm really excited because my boy Ben H. here, he's going to give you some insight on the day-to-day life he had to experience losing some of his brothers. And he also shares what it was like to have to deal with a creature that nightmares are made of. And it's giving me goosebumps just thinking about it. This will be the first part of a two-part series. You were stationed in Germany. In Germany. At what point did you get moved to go to the Middle East? I went to the Middle East in February, March of 2003. So you were in Germany first? I was living in Germany and was was deployed to Kuwait. Because this was before we went into the uh, to Iraq. We went to Iraq, I think it was April 21st, 2003. The U.S. decided they were going in and they started moving their crew closer. Yeah, it was this whole thing about weapons of mass destruction and George Bush and Colin Powell. And you remember that whole thing Saddam was going Hussein. on. Saddam Hussein. And there was the big troop buildup. Right. You were part of that I was the troop. I was part of the troop buildup. And then Bush said go. And, uh, and so we went. It didn't take us long to take over Iraq. It was like, what? It was immediate. Like 24 yeah, it, hours, It was pretty right? quick. Yeah, it was pretty, well, it wasn't 24. It was about a week. Um, I mean, it was interesting because we were in Kuwait, and all of a sudden you're in this place where it's just desert, dude. I mean, it is endless desert. Endless desert. It was wild. It was like an ocean of sand. And um, As far as the eye can see. As far as the eye can see. Absolutely. And it was interesting because when we went over into Iraq, it was like more of the same. I mean, it's just this vast desert. Um, so when we went in, the Marines went east and they went to An Nasiriyah, which was closer to the border. And then they went up the, uh, I think they went up the Euphrates River to Baghdad. And we instead, so they went right and went to Anasaria. We in the Army, the 3rd Infantry Division is who I was attached to from my unit. We went west and we went around. So we went up through the desert where the first desert storm was fought, basically. And it was, it was eerie, man, because there was all these blown out tanks and old stuff that had been there from the early 90s that just, I mean, dude, there's no cleanup crew in the desert. And that was the other George Bush. Yeah. That was yeah. the first Bush. Yeah. But it was interesting <laughs> to see how things preserve in the desert. Because think about it. I mean, there's no rain. There's no trees. There's no algae or anything like that. Anyway, so we went around that way and straight to Baghdad. It took us like uh, 37 or 38 hours. You get to Iraq. Yeah. And then what do you do? What is your title? What 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 is your role? So Yeah. So I was with an intelligence unit. And basically what an intelligence unit does tries to figure out what the enemy is doing and communicate that to the combat troops in the front. So like the tankers and the infantry and so forth. Right. And then we also will go in with the infantry and the tankers and stuff like that. When we start in integrating and finding the enemy but in, and do, you know, interrogation and counterintelligence and things of that nature. So we're there collecting and trying to figure out what's happening because you think about it, it's not like there's this level of communication between an enemy force Right. So as you engage the enemy force, you're also trying to figure out what they're doing. 
how many people they have, where they are, what their plans are, those types of things. Right. So it's not just about killing them. No, no, I right. Mean, really, we want them to surrender, right? I mean, at the end of the day, we don't want to kill. Right. But we're, we're there for a mission. You know, we're trying to, and obviously, that's a big part of it is you're going to die. I mean, you know, we thought we were going to die because the whole thing was like weapons of mass destruction. Remember right. that? Yeah. W, dude, we, we rolled in in our Humvees in gas masks with full chem suits on. Like, we thought we were about to get hit with fucking mustard gas. Oh, shit. Like, like it was certain. We're the first couple hundred in the country. Wow. So we were sure that we were about to get hit with chemical weapons. Remember, that's why we were going. Right. Because they had weapons of mass destruction. But right. they didn't, thank I, God. Right. We're thinking these guys are about to hit us with all their chemical weapons. You know, actually, it was interesting because they, they have these things called ICBMs. You ever heard of an ICBM? Yes. Intercontinental ballistic missile, right? right? So they had them. And uh, we thought that they had them loaded with chemical weapons. Right. Because that's what you would do. Like on the tips, right? On the Don't, tip. Yeah, yeah, you would load it with chemical weapons and then, and then boom, drop it in anywhere close proximity. And then boom, it blows up. And now you got a cloud of mustard gas. Right, which is just fucking people and up. And you're dead. You know, you breathe that shit and it's over, dude. And there's all types of other chemical and biological weapons that they had or that we said they had. And who knows whether they had them or not, dude. But the point is that I don't think they had them because they certainly didn't use them. He knew we were coming for him. I mean, it seems to me like he would probably use something if he had it. But he didn't. We moved so fast and so aggressively. They're calling the uh, Republican Guard. Most of them just gave up, man. Yeah, surrendered. I mean, most of them just surrendered. I mean, we rolled up on, we rolled up on a tank battalion one time. We rolled up on them. They were smoking cigs, sitting out, eating lunch. Oh wow! You know what I'm saying? I mean, they were it's like, "It's about to be a bad day." Yeah, and, and so we rolled up on them, and uh, and you know, our guys went out, and their commander came out. You know what I mean? And met with our commander, and they were like, "Dude, we thought you guys were like." eight hours south we surrender i mean <laughs> just like yeah i guess can we finish can, our fucking can we lunch? go home or something <laughs> but remember america was there to liberate the country right so when we initially went in the people were really happy to see us many of the soldiers supposed to be meeting with resistance actually in the back of their mind secretly when they talked to their wife or whatever or their dad or their mom they were like let's just get ourselves in a position to surrender because then we can go home and, like, it's going to be a whole new country. Like, it's a whole new beginning. You're going to get rid of Saddam and, like, you know what I mean? I mean, so, if we could only do that to North Korea and liberate those people, yes. because you can't say anything bad about Kim Jong-un or he'll yes. fucking kill you or have you fucking sent to a fucking camp to work for the rest of your life. Yes. But you know all those people who are like, oh, Kim Jong-un, yeah. the savior of thinking to themselves, please, Come and save our people. Please. Yeah. But the interesting thing was that it actually, taking Saddam out, created a vacuum in the Middle East. Yes, it did. we still have that problem. It's and so, fucked up shit. It's interesting how the United States tries to, um, it's this weird thing. It's like a good idea to go into someone else's country and spread Western democracy, which is ultimately a Judeo-Christian values-based society in a Muslim Land who they just hold different values. You know, I spent three or four months in Abu Ghraib as an in, as an interrogator's assistant. Basically, that's, a, that's one of the prisons. It was the main horrible place, and they didn't have enough interrogators. So I was not an interrogator, but they needed interrogators, and so they like, so they picked me, and they're like, "Hey, you're going to go interrogate." You know what I mean? I was like, "Oh, okay, cool." So I did. You had a, a numerous people, uh, friends of yours, pass, but one that yeah. was really close to you, right? Yeah, my boy Lunsford Brown. Shout out to Lunsford Brown's family. Um, 
Really sad. And, and you know, my boy Johnson and Rodabau, they didn't die. They got hurt really bad. And we had a lot of people get hurt or killed. And it was very sad, man. Um, you know, these guys were hanging out in a tent. And um, I think they were watching a movie. And, you know, we're talking about a tent with cots. And probably somebody has like a little eight-inch screen DVD player. So everybody kind of like it's sits around, around. And a damn mortar round came in the tank. Which was, you know, a mortar round looks like, I don't know, like a, a missile kind of. It's really small, though. It looks like a football with a with an airplane tail on it, basically. Right. And they shoot it out of a tube, and it goes, you know, a mile or two. And it just happened to drop just right in that tent. Fuck. And just, yeah, just, just yeah, yeah. And um, where were you when that happened? So I was back in Germany. Oh, you were back? You were on a break? Well, no, so so... When when we were in Kuwait for the troop buildup, we got our our unit came forward and you know they said, hey, uh, we need volunteers for people who are going to go with the Third Infantry Division, right? And we will we if you volunteer for this, you will also get the first slots to return home from Germany. Okay, we didn't know how long of a deployment we were on initially, right? Or what the requirement was going to be. We just didn't know. And uh, so anyways, they st- so I volunteered. And all my friends did too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so me and all, a lot of the guys you know volunteered. Right. Cody and D and Leon and, you know, all these. Right, right, right. You know, and there's a whole other group of them as great well. Great guys. Yeah. Great group of fucking guys right there. And so we all volunteered. And so then they stuck to their word. So, dude, I mean, the war is underway. We've been there for six months, and it's like, oh, you guys can go back to Germany now. And everybody was like, what? And we were like, yes. So um, so we go back to Germany, and we're there. We think we're done. Right. Like, we think we're completely finished. How long were you back in Germany? We were actually back for about 30 days. And well, then, maybe maybe 60 days, 45 days. And then you got a call? Yeah, dude. Yeah, it was crazy because, um, you know, that was a time when my family was actually there visiting us. To see you? To see us, yeah. They, like, my family, like, it was this big deal. Like, I had, like, I got out of Iraq. Like, it was crazy. Like, You're alive. You're sleep. safe. Like, right, I, yeah. I had made it, you know? It was, like, this big thing. I wasn't going back. Like, I had made it. Like... You're done. You think I'm you're done. done, you know? And uh, so my, my family comes out to Germany. My mom, my dad, my brother, my sister all fly out on a jet, you know? And uh, uh, and it was like a big family vacation. We went skiing and snowboarding, and we were, you know, at different restaurants. And I was taking them around and showing them on the trains, all the different places. And it was an amazing trip. And then all of a sudden, we get this call that everybody's to come in to uh, meet in the barracks down in the down in the lower levels where the offices were. In, and, in Germany, yeah, in Germany, and there was like a there's like a room with couches and stuff like that, and uh, there that was where we were to meet, and we were like there was thirteen of us, so there was only thirteen of us, so you can imagine, bro, we we were just partying, right? It was the best. It was one of the best times of my life. That that period of time was one of the best times of my life because it was just you're in Germany, you've got a full bank account because you've been getting combat pay, right? You haven't been spending anything, no, and you've just got. You're in the middle of Germany. You got no accountability. I mean, very little accountability. Right. No wife at home. You, 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 you no, didn't you have any sing, wife. I kids. mean, from a unit perspective, it wasn't like there was anything to do. There was nothing to do. Everybody is in Iraq. Right. 
So when what do they tell you when you're in that meeting in the barracks? We thought it was a drug test. So we're all like oh, chugging fuck. niacin. Oh god, we're burning up. You know what I mean? Like, are you getting? We're drinking like five gallons of water. Where the fuck can I buy a whizinator? <laughs> we were freaking out. We thought it was a drug test, man. We've been in the clubs oh, having a shit. good time. Like, I mean, we we had been partying basically, right? You know, um, and. So anyway, uh, we go and we thought it was a damn drug test. And uh, in a way, I wish it had been because uh, the news was daunting. It was that 13, just so happened to be, 13 of our people from our unit had been blown up at Abu Ghraib. Now, Abu Ghraib is like where Saddam executed all of his people. We had taken control of it to create a prison system for the people that we were out there catching. Gotcha. But it was so bad because it was right in the middle of the red zone. There was 10,000 prisoners and like 300, 400 soldiers. Fuck. And so the enemy knew if they could break out 10,000 people, they've got a freaking army sitting there in Abu Ghraib, and there's only freaking three or 400 soldiers standing in the way of them. So it was just constantly getting attacked to the extent that not one unit could be there. All the units in the country, there was a, there was a memorandum where you had to send a certain amount of your troops in there. 13 was our commitment. All our guys got blown up because they were sitting in the same tent when the mortar round hit. Boom, they're done, gone. Guess what? We don't have any. Everybody else is committed other than, oh. Oh, we just let these boys take <laughs> off. <laughs> the group that's back in Germany, hanging, so chilling. They, so they tell you you're needed back in Iraq. Our, our people got blown up, and you are their replacement. How many days from that notice did you have before you had to go? Um, it was quick, dude. I mean, I want to say it was like, I want to say they caught us in Friday and we were heading out like Sunday evening. They're like, get your shit, like your, get your shit in order. Like we're rolling. Like, you know, your family's still there. My family's there visiting. Right, right, right. And had like another week. Oh, fuck. To be there. So you go and tell your parents, which you thought you're done. They're happy. They're out there celebrating. We're having a blast. Going to the And you're like. They know about this meeting that you were called into, yeah, right? They don't yeah. know what it was at right. the point because you didn't. And then you have to leave there and go and tell them yeah. they want me back yes. in Iraq. Yeah, because my because my people got blown up. You obviously were like, fuck it. You I was terrified, you know. dude. I was terrified. I certainly didn't want to go back. You know, what happened was when we went in, it was this thing where the people were glad to see us. Then all of a sudden it created a vacuum. So then all of a sudden the foreign fighters came in and these are the people from Iran. These are the people from Jordan. These are the people from, you know, Saudi Arabia and other places who now want the oil. So if they can just get America out of there, they can get the oil. Right. I mean, Saddam has been destabilized. He was the power hold on Iraq. Now we are. Now he's been destabilized. So there's U.S. troops there. So let's go in there and terrorize them and kill as many of them as we can so that they'll leave and we can have the oil. So it changed about two months after we were in there, maybe 45 days in, and it had been horrible. So, uh, and in Abu Ghraib was at the time, I mean, it was like Fallujah, Abu Ghraib. I mean, it was like the worst freaking place to be. So when you told your parents you had to go back, if I heard this story before I heard it right, you, yeah. you, you were like, fuck that. I'm not going. Yeah. Yeah. We, me and, me and my friend, um, who, you know, um, me and my boy D specifically we're like we're going to canada dude i mean that was our plan we were like fuck this bro this is this is 
you know, our friends just got blown up. Like, we just got out of there. Like, we don't want to go back. And you were going to basically, it was a defect. You were like, you were going to just, yeah. I mean. Yeah, we were just going to roll out, dude. Like, the worst possible thing you can do. Like, the biggest dishonorable thing that you can do. Like, we felt that it was either that or our lives, right? And, um, and, 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 and we had, you know, we had, we had good reason to be afraid, you know. Um, yet what ultimately ended up happening, I remember D even went and, and got like, you know, 10 grand worth of Canadian dollars. He was ready. For this that. was back in the day when you went to the airport to buy a ticket. Right. You know what I'm saying? It was, yeah. was like, Oh, let me buy a ticket online or something. This On was your like, phone. You know, yeah. You go to the airport to buy a ticket. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we were going to go to the airport, buy a ticket to, uh, Vancouver, and we're just like, fuck it, dude. Like, it's beautiful there. Like, that's where we'll mountains live. there. You know, we're just going to go to Vancouver and it's going to be our life, dude. We're not going to be able to come back to the United States. And, you know, and it was kind of exciting to think about in a weird way. You right. know, we were escaping this because, you know, I mean, we were escaping this 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 horrible thing. We're watching young people get killed and we're. We're scared for our lives, but we're also, you know, when you're out there, you're really out there for one another. It's not, we didn't understand the cause. That's when I was, you know gonna, what I'm saying? My follow-up question, part of it, was it that what you were told, Yeah. the reason why you were going out there to stop these weapons of mass, mass destruction, destruction, no one had seen any proof of at, to Correct. this point. Correct. And are you questioning why the fuck are we here? Why, why, why the fuck is our military? Why are we here as a whole 100%. at all? Absolutely. And so you're like, why am I going to give my life? And we don't even know the reason why the fuck we're here. Right. Well, it was weapons of mass destruction. Then it was liberating Iraq. Oh, we're we're liberating Iraq. That's what we're doing, you know. But then the and, and that was cool. I mean, ultimately, if we could have just rolled in, liberated Iraq, all the people were like, hey, we want it. Cool. All the soldiers were like, yeah, we, we want our own country. I mean, there were Saddam loyalists, but ultimately the population was on board right. with what we were doing. But then the, you know, groups, the radical groups started coming in and persecuting the citizens, the people. So they started coming in and killing and persecuting the people. And so then we were all of a sudden defending the people who were ultimately trying to take over the country now. So it had become this different thing. Right. And so what's your dad? Is your dad the one that kind of like snapped you out of the idea? Yeah, in, in a way. I mean, you know, it was interesting because he, he was like, listen, all I can tell you is this. I can't tell you what to do. I've never been to combat before. I don't know if you're making a good decision or a bad decision. But what I can tell you is this. If you do this, there's no turning back. This is not something that you're just going to get past. This is going to be something that is going to be with you for the rest of your life. And I can't tell you whether to go or not, but just think about that. Because this isn't like, you know, something that you really recover from. This is a decision that is going to alter your life forever. Forever. I mean, it's like murder or something, you know, or something right. like that. I mean, it's it's gonna, like... It's going to take you down a whole nother path. It's just then, different now. You know what I mean? Like, everything's different now. Like, you ran. Right. Like, went AWOL when you were called to serve your country, which is what you signed up to do. Right. 
That's the that's the worst dishonor. Yeah. That and, you can that you can do. I mean, historically even. Right. And you everybody are, people get mur- people get executed for that shit. And you were how old at this point? 23, right. 22. So ultimately you and D probably got a drink, many drinks. Talked it over and said, Dude, what? I remember being in the hotel room with my brother and sister. And uh, we were in Germany, you know, they were there. And I was in the hotel room with my brother and sister. And I was just like, you know, it was like a knot in my stomach, man, that we were doing this. And I just knew deep down inside that wasn't the right thing to do. I just knew it. I couldn't do it. I just, I, I tried to walk through it in my head. And I was like, I just decided in, a, in just a moment. You know, it just it just happened where all of a sudden I realized that this was this was the wrong thing to do and I couldn't do it. And I and I couldn't let D do it either. That we had to go back, that that it was our responsibility as American citizens, as soldiers, whether, as friends to one another. Whether you lived or died. Whether we lived or died, it was still that was the right thing to do. Right. And it just was an overwhelming feeling, man. And I um uh, I called D and I uh I said, D, we can't do it. You know, I said, we can't, dude. He was like, yeah, we can, but I mean, because we were all excited. He was like, dude, don't worry about it, bro. It'd be cool. Like, well, I was like, D, can't do it, dude. He's like, you serious? And I was like, let's just get together and talk about it. And we got together and talked about it, and I laid it out. And, and he was like, you're fucking so right, dude. He was like, yeah, fuck this, bro. What are we doing? Like, right. like we got to go. So anyway, we packed up, suited up, and went, you know. It's crazy. Yeah. Thank you for your service. Yeah, man, for sure. You told me about a creature that makes the Jorah spider look like the pussy of all spiders. Right. And that would be the camel spider. The scariest thing you've ever seen in your life, dude. Now, I've seen- These are the things that that come out of it. I mean, it's like hell. Let me go into what I know about them. Yeah. So these- motherfucking monsters yeah. would attach themselves to the bottoms of camels. Yes. Because camels can't really just shoo shit off the bottom of their stomach, right? Well, they what happens is the way a camel rests is it rests on the ground. Right. It kind of, like a dog. Right, right, right. That's how it sleeps. And, you know, spiders crawl on the ground. So while the camel is sleeping, the camel spider attaches itself to the underbelly to the underbelly of the camel and it injects this 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 liquid that numbs yes. the area so it can suck it, out it can't feel the camel can't feel the camel spider sucking out the innards of the camel no it sits there and eats and just chomps it away eats at flesh. it flesh Right, it's a carnivore. It's yeah, it just sits there and it eats the flesh of the camel, which the camel can't feel because the area it's numbed is up. numbed. So it's literally just sit, it sits there and eats a hole in the camel's belly. Chows the fuck down. Chows down. I mean, these things are big. I don't know. I guess they could get to be like a foot across. Maybe that's a little aggressive, but I mean, they're no, I big. read, I read uh, something like like a uh, lobster. You know yeah. what I mean? Like <laughs> <laughs> like a fucking lobster, but way scarier looking than a lobster. They're almost transparent in color. And they can run on the sand they up run to 10, fast. 10 miles They're per so hour. They're so fast. They're so fast. Dude, if one comes at you, it's the scariest thing ever. If you stomp on it, it's likely not going to kill it. It'll bounce back up. I mean, it's just going to keep rolling. Like, if you stomp on it and then the moment you lift your foot, bro, it's still going. I mean, it doesn't just, like, pancake it. Like, this episode, that's going to be the image on our post. Because so, I want you to see. 
the nightmare yes. that these motherfucking things well, are. Well, and so and so the thing about it is that they would they would they would you know we're out in the desert, we're sleeping on the ground, we maybe are sleeping in a cot. So you try not to sleep on the ground, specifically because of the camel spiders, but still they crawl up in the cot. And there's scorpions and other things, Oh, too, there's yeah. all kinds of stuff, but people are getting fucked up by camel spiders, dude. They wake up and a big old chunk of their arm been eaten by a camel spider. That's fucked up. So you know Sk- people that... Oh, what... yeah, dude. It was happening a lot. It was happening a lot. Camel spiders are fucking people up. And, they were, and you could hit it with the butt of your gun, right? Dude, one time we had one in the tent, and we cornered it and beat it with the butt of our gun, dude. It was dead. And then we looked back over it, it was gone. Oh, shit, like a Michael Myers dude, fucking... Dude, it was fucking... <laughs> These things are terrifying, and they were everywhere, dude. And I mean, like I said, they're almost translucent, so if one run runs by you, it's almost like something you see out of the corner of your eye. I mean, it's not... It's there's not There's no bold. contrast between the sand and the spider. That's fucking... So they're very camouflaged, so they look like... It almost looks like a ghost. That's when they're going weird. full speed, I mean, they almost look like a ghost. When they're sitting still, they almost look clear. That's fucking crazy, They're dude. scary, dude. They're so scary, and they're gnarly looking. They got, like, red, red, and, oh, they're, they're, they're gnarly. And Horrible. so, um... And they just want to eat your flesh. It's all good. Yeah, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> Cheers to that. I read something on it. They don't typically hunt humans. It could be, not saying that they won't fuck you up, which yeah. you said. right. They hate the sun. They're more nighttime. And what they do is it'll seem like they're chasing humans because it wants to stay in your shadow. So where someone keeps running from them, it keeps running after them because it wants to be in the shadow and not in the sun. You don't know that. I, I didn't know that. You get wigged out, bro, is when you go to bed. That's when you get freaked out about camel spiders. And they, and they attach themselves, obviously, to camels when they're sleeping. And, right? so. and if you're attached and sucking and eating the guts yeah. out of a camel, yeah. you're in the shade because in you're the under shade, their baby. belly. That's right. You're... And they stay attached. So the camel wakes up and rolls out, and you'll see them attached to the bottom of camels. So you would, like, see a camel go by and see a fucking spider attached yeah. to it? So if you get a chance, and the you heard of see, camels. <laughs> so if you want to see a nightmarish image that yeah. is um, very interesting, yeah. if you are interested in nature and the creatures that inhabit this world of ours, check out Camel Spider. The desert, man, it's a different place. Yeah, I've never, I've never been to a desert like that before, and it's yeah. I mean, there's really not much to see. I mean, I guess it's it'd be cool to see. I mean, the sunsets are beautiful. Sandstorms are crazy. That's a yeah. different experience. Would yeah. they happen as often as a, a thunderstorm? Like yeah, exactly. So I was there for 18 months. And you don't go outside in the sand because you're getting Well, fucked. you can go outside, but you can't see. And, you, you and can't your see. skin's got to be covered, right? You got to be getting... completely covered up. I mean, obviously, you're breathing sand. You can't see. If you don't have goggles, you have to have goggles on. Sunglasses don't work because if you have sunglasses on, it's just... It goes up. It's like somebody throwing a handful of sand in your eye. I mean, you're done. As soon as you walk out there, it's over. I can't imagine that sand being whipped around from a storm feels good against your skin. Well, a lot of the sand, too, like even when you're walking through it, it's like talcum powder. It's like baby powder. So when the wind blows. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's wild, man. It's a whole different situation. So it was interesting. One of the things that I really remember about it is uh, it was like 100. 36 degrees during the day yeah 
or something like almost like 140. Maybe it was 140 at some point. And what I remember is that, um, I mean, what is the boiling point of water? The thing about it is that when you don't have refrigeration, it's 140 degrees outside. It doesn't matter if you got a bottle of water sitting in your backpack. It's 120 degrees at least, the water. So it was hard to drink water because how hot the water was. You didn't get a refreshing, cool... No, it was like drinking hot It was drinking hot water. The water was hot. Oh, that's nasty. Just hot. I mean, not like warm. Like, so put you... it on a tea kettle hot. <laughs> so was that how your showers were, too? There were no... Well, yeah, because you're just dumping a bottle of water on you. That's your shower. You get rationed bottles of water. You get, you know, two a day or three a day, and that's everything you got, dog. Whatever you need water for. I got to call you out because you did tell me a story since we're talking about water yeah. and showers. Yeah. Um, was it your, um, your one of the commanders that gave you shit, or maybe that was in your training because you were using so much toilet paper? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was in basic training, man. Um, that was so funny. Um, How did you get caught using so much toilet paper? Well, it was funny because the drill sergeant was all pissed off, dude. And like, and, uh, came and like called everybody into the barracks and like was cussing everybody out because we were going through more toilet paper than anybody he'd ever seen. You bunch of little bitches. You bunch of little bitches. He's like, and then he was like, he's like, somebody answer me a question. You got to wipe your ass. How many sheets of toilet paper do you use? And nobody said anything. And he was like, somebody better say something now. Y'all about to get smoked. <laughs> and, uh, and and I forget what I said, dude. But I was like, um, I was like, I thought about it in my head. Like, for what I do. You know, you uh, take the roll. Yeah. Maybe you do, like, a, a roll around your hand. Or maybe you go twice around your You get a right. little bunch. Right. You know, you get. And I'm thinking, how many sheets is a bunch? Right. Think about it. I mean, how many, I don't know. Five or six. Right. So that's why I, I think I said like five or six drill sergeant. Per white. He's like, who the fuck was that? <laughs> <laughs> five to six like squares. Squares. Right. Per wipe. Right. right. Who the fuck was that? <laughs> I was like, it was me, drill sergeant. God damn, hide and right. <laughs> you are the problem. You know, one sheet. using all of our toilet paper. Who else thinks it's acceptable to use five to six sheets of toilet paper uh, per uh, white? <laughs> and nobody said anything. <laughs> and then he taught us the method by which we should be using one ply, which was quite disturbing. Uh, which was one ply, one sheet, and then you take you know your birdie finger, uh-huh. and you make a you make a hole in the sheet, and then you stick your birdie finger through. So that the rest of the sheet is on your hand and only your birdie finger is sticking out. And you use your finger to collect, the uh, to clean yourself onto the, the one piece of toilet paper. And then you take the toilet paper and you slide it off of your finger. So you're sticking and your finger. And that's fin- how you use one sheet. <laughs> so you're sticking your finger in your butthole. Around it. You know, not like, you're not like fingering yourself, but yeah, you're, you're you know. That's interesting. Did Which you I ever... never did. I never, I never did try it. Right. I continued to do my thing. You know, I was <laughs> right. like, "Fuck it." I'm. <laughs> but you know, someone in here watching me. It's part of the indoctrination process. I mean, it's not something that was unique to us. This is something that you know everybody goes through. Because you know, you come from 
living at home you come in, from in america are, in america just, using however much toilet paper you want i've got more than i need of That's everything right. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> and i'll throw all this away exactly and uh and so it's you know it's part of the indoctrination of teaching you how to be a soldier man thank you again for your service yeah, dude. that was uh that was great great time in my life man ultimately all my friends at the time you know i grew up in tallahassee florida so everybody was going to college Right. And I didn't want that, man. I, I went to college and I was like, this sucks. This sucks. I don't, I don't want to do this. Like, I, I want to travel. I want to see the world. Like, I want to do something cool. Like, and my father owned a real estate company and, and so I had an opportunity to work with him. And I was like, I don't want to do that either. So this was a great thing for me. That's fucking awesome, dude. It, it sounds like uh, it sounds like a hard time, uh, but it also sounds like something that has helped shape you. Yeah, it's immense today. growth. You know, you learn that ultimately growth is uncomfortable. Always. So it's change. Exactly. And change is growth. Hopefully, yeah. most of the time, anyway. Yeah, I mean, you know, so it was a it was a period of immense growth for me. And I, you know, hopefully that's the case for most people who serve. Hey, thanks for listening to the Man Fuse podcast. Get up with us next week for part two. Ben is going to describe in detail about what it was like to work in a place that he calls hell on earth. And I'm talking about the Abu Ghraib prison. Look for it next week.